Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Kings chapter 12, uh, we just got done for context. We just got done seeing the end of Solomon's reign. Uh, for, for chapter 12 starts with the word and, like the, the fall of Solomon rolls right into what we see next. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard he was still in Egypt, for he'd fled the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. And so he said to them, Depart from me for three days, and then come back to me. And the people departed. So we have this, uh, first of all, you got to learn Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The names sound fairly familiar, but very dif different people. Rehoboam is the descendant of Solomon that's going to take over the kingship. Jeroboam is just one of the people that worked and was over the labor force for Solomon that had kind of prestige within the kingdom. And God had sent a prophet to Jeroboam saying he would take 10 tribes of Israel away from Solomon's family. Uh, so God's going to keep the line of Judah going with Rehoboam. But Jeroboam's going to take the rest of Israel and go off and be with him. So because of Solomon's sin, God lifted the unity of the people of God, and the people of God are now going to have a split. All of this is given to us for instruction and teaching, according to Paul. So all of the Old Testament's here for us to learn from. And if anything, we get to see what it looks like when God's people split up into two different groups. And we get to see how it happens and what happens and some of the forms for that. Um, and we definitely get to see that tonight. So the entire Bible, for context, has been progressing towards the foundation of this kingdom. You'd think from here it would get even better, but from here the trend team seems to be downward. So God establishes a new way for humans to interact with them. It starts out really good, and then it kind of dissolves over time. The period of judges started out with a good judge and dissolved to, like, Samson. Right? And now we get the king starting off with David, and it's just going to keep dissolving. And the, the, the first dissolution was Solomon falling into sin. The second one is going to be that the, the, ne the, the second from David can't even keep the kingdom together. Everything just falls apart and gets to be fractioned. So from here, with each era of human history, we see the humans getting a fair shot, but the humans blowing it at the same time. That can become confusing because you're reading of all these disasters thinking, oh my goodness, where's God? And God's waiting for these people to come back and serve him. So there's unity under Solomon. It's light. Remember David had a revolt with Sheba and he had to kind of deal with that revolt, or, uh, Sh Sh Shema, not Sheba. And then in chapter 10, God told Solomon and Jeroboam that he would split the country. So he went to both of these people. Uh, in verse 2 of this, uh, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, the word it's not actually there. It implies that he heard Rehoboam was going down. Um, 
but it seems more like that if you take the word it out, so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard. He's heard of the fact that they're going to make Rehoboam king, and he heard some sort of message. So in chapter 4, the, the Israelites... Um, oh, I'm sorry, not chapter 4. In the last chapter, we have this idea that Jeroboam's coming back to challenge Rehoboam because he knows that this has happened. And he, he stayed out of it with Solomon, and he's coming back now that he's heard Solomon's gone. Verse 4, then, uh, is another situation uh, where you say that they were, they were in forced labor, the burden of the, their, the yoke which was put upon them. It's interesting when you have these splits happen or these dividing of people, this lack of unity, they often start with a false complaint. They start with somebody being worked up about something that's just not a big deal. So when they say the burden of Solomon, that should, for, as we've been reading through this, you should be, wait, what burden from Solomon? He enslaved non-Jewish people, but remember, he never enslaved the Jewish people. So what is he talking about with a false, or this heavy burden that they put on there? Chapter 4, verse 25, says they all dwelt in safety. Chapter 9, verse 22, says no one was forced to labor in Israel. They, they labored because they, they wanted to for a fair day's wage. Solomon was over generous with paying Israelites for their work. So when they come up and they say this heavy yoke, maybe they're talking about taxes or maybe they're just exaggerating something to be worse than it was under Solomon in the first place. In fact, they've enjoyed safety and peace under Solomon's reign for 40 years now. Living in peace and safety often makes people complacent and it also makes them soft at some level. So this long period of peace and rest under Solomon hasn't made them happier. It's actually made them less content, a trend we tend to see in countries that don't have struggle and strife in them. The yoke that's here is, is kind of a reference. Your father made our yoke heavy. Israel was yoked at one time by Egypt, and, and the idea that something gets yoked or not yoked is going to be a spiritual image for a good part of the Bible. The, because Egypt yoked Israel, God got them out of there because God doesn't like his people to be under burden or this forced labor idea. He had a sacrificial red heifer that was to never be yoked. So even in a spiritual sense, God always set that up as one of the conditions of the sacrificial cows. They couldn't be yoked because to be forced to be into any kind of labor was something where the spirit has to be broken for that to happen. And for God's people, they shouldn't have broken spirits. And, and in fact, Jesus goes on to say, like, his burden is light, and, or his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So when we move into the service of God, it shouldn't be one of forced labor ever. And that image is pretty consistent. Uh, the burdensome service or the bond servants, uh, again, is this idea that they're talking about this earthly work that they had to do and or taxes. They essentially don't like the demands that Solomon had put on them. Or, they're talking about in a spiritual sense, they don't like the demands that God put on them. And here's the demands that they had. And I think as we go through the rest of the chapter, you're going to see the burdensome service they're talking about is religious. It's not civic or labor. Because all the solutions to this heavy burden happen to be religious solutions. So at the very beginning of this, when they say, your father made our yoke heavy, it seems like from the rest of the chapter, they're actually talking about religious burdens or things they have to do for the sake of Yahweh. And here's what they were forced to do. God ordained for them to go to Jerusalem three times a year. They had to make feasts. So they had to get together and party three times a year. It was a have to for them. 
And I don't think God meant that to be a have to. He meant that to be a get to, right? Going to the state fair shouldn't be punishment. This Yahweh stuff that they asked for, they basically want an easier religion. They want it to be more convenient. When God's people splits, it's often because you got people that just, it's too hard. They want it to be easier, more convenient. It says, your father, your father made our yoke heavy. It's an interesting that they said that because the house of David, not the house of Solomon. Remember, we just saw the last two chapters. Solomon like gave permission for all sorts of compromise. So when they're referencing things here, they're saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Um, and they could be talking about Solomon there, but as we go through the rest of the chapter, they're going to refer to the house of David. So it's likely they're talking about the things David said they had to do versus what Solomon said they had to do. So as we go through this, we're going to look at just this idea of it's not the house of Solomon we're talking about, it's the house of David. And David's house was one of worship. It demanded worship. It required worship. Uh, David got rid of idols. So wouldn't it be nice if this son of a son offered a lighter burden than the house of David did? Wouldn't it be nice if that got taken off of their plate and they didn't have to do all these things? So what happens when God's people have a disagreement is that some people in the group want to burden other people in the group. That's bad. We don't do that. We don't put burdens on each other. That We take the burdens that God's put on our shoulders. And those, according to Jesus, should be fairly easy to take. Then you get to verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Be nice. That's the advice. So elders here isn't necessarily age elders. This is elders in that they have experience is the kind of use of that word there. We know that if these people served with Solomon, Solomon reigned for 40 years. So if they were actually older too, chronologically, they have 40 years of experience of working under the wisest man to ever live. It's hard to think they wouldn't have had some of that wisdom rub off on them. Just day after day seeing how Solomon thought, how he made decisions. The pastoral letters give advice that when we select people for ministry or service in the church, they should have wisdom. <laughs> they should have served in the church for a period of time to gain that wisdom from the people around them. In other words, wisdom is something we pass on to the next generation. It's not something that just magically appears unless you're Solomon. So if Solomon was wise, these elders then, it's assumed, have some wisdom to offer. Um, it says today, uh, he spoke to them saying, how would you, if you will be a servant to these people today, what they're suggesting then is a short-term concession for a long-term relationship. That seems like wisdom. That's a really good trade. If you give up this today, then you're going to have a lifetime of a positive relationship. You won't have conflict. So there's a wiseness here to invest in relationships, to be a servant is the other thing that's suggested. If Rehoboam could be a servant to these people. The problem with pride is that it gets in the way of us actually helping and serving other people. If we think we're too good to pick up plates or vacuum a rug or to clean up a piece of litter, like we're not good for anybody anymore. And the advice of these wise people is maybe be a servant. Like do something nice for someone else and they're going to see that. This is wise. In fact, the idea of being a servant is in the Bible 723 times. Good piece of wisdom. Be a servant. So when we're looking at how to conduct ourselves, especially amongst God's people, it should be that we do we think of the ways in which we can help others. 
Matthew uh, 20, verse 26, Jesus taught the same idea. You all know this verse. Yet it shall not be among you that whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. You want to do good things for the kingdom? Be a servant. Rehoboam rejects this advice. In fact, he rejects it before he gets other advice because if he brought in the elders of his father, you'd think if he was actually willing to listen to them, he would have listened to them and acted accordingly. But in the fact that he asks for a second opinion means he wasn't really trusting the first opinion. So in verse 8, he rejects the advice of uh, which the elders had given him, and he consulted the young man who had grown up with him, who stood before him, and he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young man who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastened you with whips. I will chastise you with scourges. You think it was bad under Solomon? You just wait. It's going to be even worse. So compared to the elders, these younger folks, <laughs> it says young men, but the problem is it also says they grew up with Rehoboam. Rehoboam is at least 40 years old at this point. So don't think these are like teenagers giving advice. These are just young men and that they're not experienced as leaders. They didn't serve with Solomon. So he grew up with them, but he's asking people who have no experience doing the thing that needs to be done. One of the reasons God's people split sometimes is where we get our advice from. We should always look to get our wisdom and advice from people that have actually gone out and done the things in the kingdom that we would like to be doing. If you want advice on how to host, talk to somebody in the church that does hosting and has done it for a long time. Want advice on how to teach the word? Talk to somebody who's taught the word a few times. Want advice on people on, on, on how to exhort people and how to counsel people, uh, how to bless people in those ways? Talk to people that you see actually doing those things. So the young men here are people that have no experience in leadership and they're giving really foolish advice. So Rehoboam asks people what they think until he gets the answer he wants to hear, which is to stick it to him. So he never, there's no evidence here that he consults God. He never goes to the priesthood. He never asks for a prophet to give an opinion. So we have people that are just not living in the kingdom at all. Uh, there's nothing here that shows any evidence of prayer, priest, temple, or sacrifice. The four ways we've seen kings try to connect with God. Nothing. Uh, the idea of chastising with whips, again, this is another exaggeration. We've seen nothing in the book of Samuel or Kings of any evidence of that happening. So a lot of times splits within God's people happen because a lie gets planted. And then the lie gets repeated and exaggerated. And then it becomes a much bigger thing than it was. We call this gossip. And that can happen and it can be a really bad thing. So he comes back to the people saying, you don't like what I do? I'm going to do it even worsely than my dad did. Is that a word? No. no, it's not a word. So he chooses to be controlling instead of letting God lead the kingdom. Sometimes when you get disagreements amongst God's people, it's because you got a leader that's being a tyrant. They're being kind of bossy. And they're, thinking, they're not doing things because God said to do things, and they're not acting according to God's will. And that doesn't mean don't chastise, rebuke, or anything like that. 
Chastisement here is treated as a bad thing in verse 11, but we actually saw David do chastisement and Solomon do chastisement when it was justly deserved and when God said to do it. But when people are just doing it for the sake of doing it, like Rehoboam, that's going to cause problem amongst the people. So verse 12, so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, come back to me on the third day. And then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips. Again, no evidence of that. But I will chastise you with scourges. Uh, scourges are whips with little chunks of rock tied onto the end of them so that they rip the flesh when you pull them back. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. In other words, all of this is happening, and God had said all of this would happen, and he called it way ahead of time. So we get another evidence of God knowing what's going to happen. It's called prophecy. God didn't force anybody's hand at any point in any of this, but he knew what was going to unfold and how it was going to unfold. So God uses, this is a tough for some people, God recognizes the free-willed actions of Rehoboam and the other people involved here. And because he's outside of time, he actually knows how things are going to unfold. He knows there's some connection between Solomon's sin and why Rehoboam chose to act this way at this time. And that there's something going on in those relationships and how it works. At the most, God inspired people to ask for a lighter load like they did in Egypt. There's nothing wrong with saying to the king, the load's too heavy, we need it lightened a little bit. So leave us be. And that's what they asked for in Egypt, and God actually intervened. So in verse 22, we're going to later see that uh, God does intervene in this situation, and, but it's a little different than Egypt. So here's the split. Uh, verse 16, Now when, we all, when all Israel saw the king and did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah, which would include both Judah and Benjamin. So here's the split. This is the, we're going to have a split Israel for largely the rest of the Old Testament. The northern kingdom is going to be dissolved, and then you'll have Judah being the one that we follow off to Babylon, and the line of Jesus continues for the line of Judah. So it's amazing that such a massive turning point in the Bible gets so little attention, like verses 16 and 17, and then the history just rolls forward. And again, I don't think God focuses on sin that much, but what you have here is tyranny versus defiance, and that's just a toxic combination because defiance is fed by tyranny and tyranny is fed by defiance. And so this is not the intention that God has for his people where you have non-tyranny or free operations together and you have compliance or obedience. So you can have a very gentle touch when you have obedient people. And that's kind of the relationship God wants to have with us. He doesn't need to discipline us, Hebrews chapter 12. If he doesn't have to discipline us and we continue to grow, then he would prefer that arrangement. But if he loves us and we're doing the wrong thing, he's going to discipline us. He's going to chastise us. So what share do we have? Uh, essentially, this is the same kind of revolt that we had back in 2 Samuel 20. In fact, they're quoting 2 Samuel 20. The only thing they add here is, See to your own house, O David. 
So it's the exact same situation that we've seen before with Israel. It's bringing back old bitterness that was there before. We know Ephraim's kind of the head of this group. And Ephraim and Judah have been at spatting spots throughout the book of Judges and Samuel. Ephraim's always kind of had this role of thinking they deserve more than they have. And God's letting that to play out here and, and taking some of Israel away from Rehoboam. They reject the inheritance. I think that's interesting that when they talk about the inheritance in verse 16, we've instantly left this idea of actual manual labor, which is how you can read those first verses. They're actually rejecting the inheritance that David has and the son of Jesse has. The inheritance of this house is Jesus himself. The promise of Messiah is the inheritance. So as we've gone through the Bible, don't miss the fact that they're using that word right here, and that word seems a little out of place unless this is actually a spiritual difference, that they've been going after idols and false worship for so long that at this point they're ready to just move on. Oh, David, really the division here then isn't against Solomon or even Rehoboam. The rejection here is David and David's God. So they're mentioning O David in verse 16 and bringing his name up. That's why we still say the throne of David. Solomon kind of lost that right. We say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they were all faithful, the patriarchs, the trilogy, right? But with David, we just say the house of David, the throne of David. And Solomon has lost that part of the inheritance. And, and it could have been like David, Solomon, Rehoboam, the second trilogy. But they just didn't play it out that way. It was just a whole different situation. And that's kind of sad. Verse 18, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. This is an odd decision, don't you think? So the nation splits. They go two different directions. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes just take off. And then Rehoboam sends a tax collector around. So this is either because he didn't like Adoram or he was delusional as to the connection he had to these people. He thought that connection was somehow mandated instead of voluntary. And this is a huge mistake, and Adoram pays the price for it. Notice that he mounts his chariot in haste. They throw in a little conditional there. He's reacting instead of planning and thinking thoughtfully. He's not following the Word of God. He's reacting to situations. Again, you see all these problems just piling on top of each other. Odd thing, I think. Uh, now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had came back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was So Israel here isn't a united Israel. This is the northern kingdoms called Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled at the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom of Rehoboam to the son Solomon. So people call this kind of, it says none who followed. Did you catch that? But then down in verse 21, it says the tribe of Benjamin's there too. The reason for that is Benjamin's completely surrounded by Judah geographically. So when Judah's getting armed for war, like Benjamin has a choice. They might not be for Rehoboam, like they're happy to see this guy go down, but they also live in the middle of his territory. So they're politically savvy, and though they don't back Rehoboam, they're going to actually join a united military force with them so they don't have themselves get banished. Jerusalem then 
remains with Jerusalem's a tribe of Benjamin. They remove, re remain with Judah in this situation. So Rehoboam's going to try to reunite the country by force. This was really difficult when Abe Lincoln was struggling with the Civil War. Because one of the first things he had to do when the southern states seceded from the Union is he had to decide if it was worth trying to fight it. So as a deep believer, Abe Lincoln came back to this passage and saw that when Rehoboam tried to reunite the country, that it, was, it didn't work out for Rehoboam. It was a disaster. So that was something that Abe Lincoln really had to wrestle with. Thankfully, Abe Lincoln decided to continue to force the South to be part of the Union because he was committed to unity. And I'm not calling the United States Israel. I am saying we had leaders that went to the Bible to look for their wisdom. And he found other spots that, that looked at slavery as evil, and that was more compelling to him than reading this passage into how to do leadership. But he weighed this passage in when he did it. Verse 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus, okay, first in verse 23, notice that the prophet goes to Rehoboam, um, but also goes to the house of Judah and Benjamin, which would be the elders of those two tribes, and to the rest of the people. So this prophet was running around to everybody, very public proclamation that said, verse 24, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. This is huge. Rehoboam starts foolishly and not obeying God's word, but he ends, at the end of the day, he obeys the Lord God when he's given a direct command. This makes Judah and Benjamin take pole position. If you think the two, the split in this country started on equal platforms, God started by telling Jeroboam that he would take over, and Jeroboam's going to fall into sin and lose the blessing of God. Rehoboam starts in contradiction to God, not seeking his counsel, but when he hears the word of God, he obeys. This is, I think, a really kind of interesting thing. Jesus talked about the servant that was told to do something, and he said he would go do it, but then he doesn't. And they had another servant that was disobedient, but at the end, he said he wouldn't do something, but then he goes out and does it anyways. And Jesus asked, which servant's the better servant? And in this case, if you're looking at Rehoboam and Jeroboam, which one's the better servant? The one that was a knucklehead to begin with, but eventually obeyed? Or the one that said he would obey, but then doesn't obey? And the answer to that's going to play out through the rest of Kings. So God actually um, shows that Jeroboam initially was following God, but we're going to see really quickly that he goes another direction. It says, this prophet says, you shall not go up and fight. We should note as we go through Kings that the prophets at this point, starting with Samuel, had huge respect amongst the people of Israel. Prophets were venerated. They were treated very carefully. They had a high regard and a high respect. By the time we get to the later prophets, they're getting stoned and killed. So what we have from this point through the rest of Chronicles is we're going to see that we have the kings versus the prophets. And at this point in time, the prophet speaks up and Rehoboam responds to it. But as we keep going through history, the prophets will get less and less respect and the kings will actually start seeking them out to destroy them. But at this point, this guy shows up and says, you shouldn't go fight. And the whole country stops and says, okay, we're not going to fight. And God says, this is for me. 
the idea here is that God is okay with the split to happen. So if they were to then pursue the fight, that'd be doing the wrong thing. So I wonder sometimes if the right thing is to try to keep unity, but there are times where God allows people to split because it's part of his plan, which is why sometimes we say to people, like, don't go away mad, just go away. If the Spirit's calling you that way, God bless you and do your thing. If the Spirit's calling you here, God bless you and come do that thing with us. Um, so this is this idea where God's saying, I'm okay with the split, so don't try to send tax collectors. Um, don't go away angry, just kind of let it happen. And God may be in these cases of, of the division of God's people, he might be expanding leadership so you have two ministries instead of one. That's a good thing. It could be that God's cleaning house. He's getting people out of a fellowship that don't belong in a fellowship. And it could be that he's just reducing the yoke that's on the leaders of a group of God's people. Less people to worry about. And any one of those three things, like it's not our job to determine which it is. It is our job to follow the Lord. So we see here that rejecting the house of David becomes a theological choice. And God's going to bless or not bless based on the obedience to God's word. So God's word shows up through the prophet. Judah and Benjamin say, we're going to obey God's word. And they're going to get blessed for doing that. Um, as we see Israel eventually on its way to Babylon. But they obey, Abraham listen, or Rehoboam listens in verse 24, and he ends the right way. Then you get to 25, we're switching back to Jeroboam and the northern tribes. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and he dwelt there. Also he went out from there and built Penuel. That's a city that would be on the other side of the Jordan River. It's outside of the God's chosen holy land. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Remember whenever you see that phrase set in their heart, that's not always a good thing in the Old Testament, right? That's humans doing their own thinking. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer their sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam king of Judah. So Jeroboam's thinking very politically here. If I don't build a new kind of worship, they're going to go back to the temple in Jerusalem and eventually their hearts are going to go back to Yahweh. Do you see that? So the solution to the heavy yoke is a religious solution. And it's a spiritual debate that they're having here. And what's sad is that he recognizes that the house of the Lord is at Jerusalem and he names Yahweh there in verse 27. So he understands what he's doing here. And when he builds Shechem, the earthly work that he's doing um, has always seems to be about something where there's this contradiction to what God wants for God's people. So all of these people believe in Yahweh, but only some of them are following Yahweh. And I think that's a distinction that gets to be really important, especially when you live in a country where lots of people say that they're Christians, but that doesn't mean that they're actually following Christ. Sometimes it just means they're calling themselves something. So we get a glimpse of the motivations of Jeroboam. These are not godly motivations. They're motivations from his heart. He's now plotting and planning like a shrewd politician. And he's worried about the hearts of the people. So he uses his own machinations to try to control God's people's hearts. That's an odd thing to do. So it's not in faith and it's not in God's spirit. Moving on to verse 28. Therefore the king asked advice. And this king now is Jeroboam, the king of the north made two calves of gold and said to the people, is it, too, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. Oops, that's 
that's scary. Remember the last time they made gold calves? Yeah. That was Aaron making one gold calf. Well, what could be better than one gold calf? Two gold calves. God ended it the first time. This time he's letting it go. These aren't necessarily people operating under the blessing of God anymore, so why would God chastise them? Hebrews chapter 12, we just did it this morning. And he set up one at Bethel, uh, which is, actually means the house of God, and he put the other in Dan. So he, the verse 29 is significant in that he set up places of worship in the far northern part of the northern tribes and in the far southern part. And then Shechem and Penuel he builds on the other on a horizontal kind of thing where he's getting sideways. So he builds these two cities, builds these two places of worship. In essence, he's making things far more convenient. And I think this is sadly one of the things that splits up God's people is convenience. What's easier for me? Should I be where God wants me to be or should I do the thing that's easier for me? And so instead of having one unified place of worship, he sets up one in Bethel, he sets up one in Dan, verse 30. Now this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, and he made shrines on the high places and made priests of every class of people who were not the sons of Levi. Interesting thing. Old Testament, the Torah has tons of rules and laws. It seems like every single one of them, there's a story about where that gets broken. Um, the king asks advice. It doesn't say that he asked advice from God, and God clearly would have never given the advice to make gold calves. That's just not something we've seen God do. So this idea of manipulating people to let go of God's commands starts with compromise. He uses the history of Egypt in verse 28 to twist people away from God's word and God's command. We see this in spiritual leaders, sadly, often. They set up a brand new religion of their own design. Instead of sticking to God's word, they just do whatever they want. And they twist it into a people-pleasing, compromised kind of religion. Notice the compromise comes with the high places. High places would have been part of the pagan worship world, so they adopt elements of the pagan world to be part of their Jewish world. And in doing this, they do what we call compromise. They compromise the church. The pretense of freedom, we're going to do whatever we want to do, is not actually getting them out of the, or the, the obligations of religion. It's just putting them into a new religion. They're going to worship something other than Yahweh the way God wanted it. Remember, this was about the heavy yoke. But that heavy yoke just turned into building two new cities and two new places of worship. It sounds like they didn't get out from any yoke at all. They just fell under Jeroboam's yoke instead of Rehoboam's yoke. So... The spiritual change is all you really see here. We don't see less labor. We see more labor. Then you got these ideas of a false assembly, and I think it's worth kind of unpacking this a little bit. I see four elements of false assembly that come on here. And I think this is a great conversation, too, afterwards. What constitutes a false assembly of God? People that say they're meeting on the behalf of God, but they're not. They're doing their own thing from their own heart. Here's what it looks like. Calves of gold. What does that look like today? We obviously don't have golden calves that, oh, that's a golden calf church. We can't go to that one. But we do have things that are shiny, that look wealthy, that are polished, and everything looks nice. Because I think that's a key piece of creating a, a church after people's hearts instead of after God's will. 
they're stealing the language of God and using it to create very Egyptian-like places that are glossy and shiny and fancy to make it visually attractive and more exciting. So they're trying to stimulate the senses versus the heart and the soul. They use language from the scriptures. Verse 28 actually uses the scripture, but they're misquoting it because instead of doing the, the actual quote that they're making comes from when Aaron made a golden calf and it was actually an evil thing to do. They forget to tell you that part. So they're twisting the word of God and using the scriptures to make things look shinier and nicer. That's number one, calves of gold. Number two, it says it is too much. It's too much work to have to travel to Jerusalem. So part of, I think, a worldly false assembly is you do things for the sake of convenience. This is a tough one for me. Why wouldn't we make stuff more convenient for people? Why wouldn't you make things as easy as people? You guys are sitting on nice, soft, cushy chairs, except for those of you on the floor. The word, it is too much. Verse 32 has the idea of the times, and then he sets up two locations instead of one both making it easier in terms of time and in terms of um, location or distance. So you're going to have it easier to get to. There are going to be better times to get to. And this is a tough balance because like, we want to meet at times that work, but we don't want to meet at times that just work for us. We want to meet at times that work for the kingdom. The goal isn't convenience. The goal is faithfulness. And so it's a, a, a thing. I looked up Barna polls. I, I think to say it's too much, I, I would be negligent to not talk about tithe a little bit. God asked for 10% tithe. I looked up a Barna poll of the American church today. 30% of Christians make no contribution to church whatsoever. So 30% of self-processing Christians. Well, that it's because it's too much. Only 3 to 5% give a full percent tithe. That means 50% of believers offer 0 to 2% in their tithe. Another 15 do 2 to 10%. And only 3 to 5% of all peace people that call themselves Christians in America today, according to Barna, actually tithe 10%. It's too much. So you get this idea that there's even a movement in the popular church today called the 5% movement that we're only going to tithe 5% in this church. Why? Where did you get that from? It's because it's more convenient. And you're trying to sell people. And it actually, it makes, politically, from a worldly sense, it makes a lot of sense. If most of your people don't tithe anything, then 5% is better than nothing. So you're trying to edge them towards obedience instead of teaching them what God says to do. Right? So that's a, a, a it's always a tough thing to talk about tithe because it, it has nothing to do with, that's between you and God. I wouldn't be a good teacher if I didn't bring it up. But I think it's one of those things when, when you see a church say, we're going to make this more convenient for people or easier for people, I don't know that religion's always supposed to, be, or our faith in the Lord is supposed to go without any sacrifice. Sometimes it goes with a sacrifice. God accepts those things when done with the right heart. Number three, shrines on high places. Compromise. To make a high place for Judaism to adopt the elements of the world and bring it into their worship process is to open the assembly to people that are living alternative lifestyles. And I chose those words very carefully. When you open up the worship of God to things that have nothing to do with God, that's dangerous and it's compromise. So when they start introducing high places, you, what's wrong with like a, a worship center on top of a hill? Because God said not to do that. He said the worship is going to be in Jerusalem. That's where it's supposed to be. So it doesn't, at some point, let's not talk about the limiting laws of God 
and, uh, and how we allow people to live however they please, to not have limits is to simply not do it God's way. And to have limits is to say, I'm going to live within the limits God's given me. It's not about being worldly or convenient or comfortable. It's about being holy. So we shift the whole intent of religion when we disregard God's law for religion. So Sean, it just makes you so legalist. No, don't be a Christian if you don't like the laws. But God said there's a way to live and a way to do things that he's commanded. If you want to call yourself a believer and you say he's your king, then do what your king says. Be a good servant. Or don't. Stop faking it. Because you're just taking up everybody's time. Number four, priests from every class. I'm hitting every hot button there is tonight. So calves of gold, convenience, it's too much, shrines on high places, compromise, and then you get priests from every class. Anybody can be a priest. Now, this is interesting because Jesus says he's going to make all the, we're a holy priesthood, and that we all are, have priestly duties in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has done some definition of priests, but let's, be, let's not presume that we know better than God how that should play out in the church environment. And this is, again, where things get, this is really why they split, is the northern kingdoms wanted to do it their own way. They wanted a shiny gold calf. They wanted a convenient locations. They wanted to integrate their pagan rituals right into their faith practices. And they wanted to make priests of anybody they wanted to make priests of. Why only Levites? Why did God make that rule? The Bible has given us no real substantial reason why the Levites, other than that they lost the inheritance, remember? And then they were obedient and God then said, okay, you'll get no land inheritance. So he kept that promise, but I'm going to make you a holy priesthood because they stuck with Judah, right? So they did something faithful. He brought them back in and he said, you're going to be my servants. You won't get land, but you get to serve in my kingdom. So they're paying off a debt. So he picks the Levites. We have reasons for that, but you could say, well, how restrictive. That was hundreds of years ago. Like our culture's changed since that time. We're different than we were back in the... 2500 BCs, right? So we can pick whoever we want. We don't have to just stick with Levites. How dated and how anti-modern that thought is that it could only be Levites. So they're going to make anybody a priest that they want to. And the Bible points that out as a deep sin of the northern tribes. They'd have made anybody a priest that they wanted to make priests. Judges 18, we know that Dan already had a false priest. So some of these northern tribes had already set up their own priesthoods, and we know that from Judges 18. Well, the practices of Dan have had a couple hundred years to germinate. And then you say, well, Dan has made their own priests. Why can't Ephraim make their own priests? Why can't everybody be a priest? Because Jesus hasn't said that yet. That's the answer. God said it was going to be that word, and if we believe God's word doesn't change, we keep it even though it's not modern anymore. So this becomes a real sticking point. I was talking to a person this last week, and she goes, oh, I just saw you guys were involved in Calvary Chapel. And, and I'll tell you this story, and I know there might be people with different thoughts on this, but it amazes me how this becomes a litmus test. The first thing she goes, oh, I looked it all up. I've been stalking Calvary Chapel to see what you guys are all about and what you do, and I just got one question. And I'm thinking the one question is like, like, end times like what's your you know or what's your epistemology or what's what's your belief around you know the gifts of the spirit you know big questions real questions what do you think about the veracity of the word of god but that wasn't her question do you guys take female pastors that was her question she's going to judge an entire community of faith that has fruit on that question i'm thinking 
Okay, I don't want to get into the debate with you about all that sort of thing, but why is that the thing that, you, that, that sticks with you? And part of it is people don't want to listen to what God has said or hasn't said. So it's not an issue of like actually digging into the word to see what it says, but that's the only thing she could think about. And I think that's what was going on with the northern tribes. They wanted to be, anybody can be a priest. They're going to make a priest of whoever they want to. That's a really scary thing. And again, oh, you're being so legalistic. I just want to do it the way God said to do it. And I really don't care what my culture says. I'm going to go with what the Bible says over what the culture says because I think God's far more reliable than my culture. It's just a simple choice. And it's a balance that has to be made. And not everybody feels that way, even in this room, and I get that. But I'd also encourage you to, like, if it doesn't say it in the Bible, why push it? Why go there? So you have this situation where they split. We see immediately what they do after the split is they do religious things. They change the religion. So it really wasn't about how hard they were working. That was a false pretense. And sometimes you see that when God's people split up, you start to see that one of the two groups, it was really more about that thing or that other thing. Verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. You know I like these numbers. Uh, we shouldn't miss that. It, Yahweh ordained that there was a feast on the 14th day, um, and it was on the 7th month. Why did they change it? Why did they change it? So, because they're going to do it their own way. And here's the thing. The 8th month is far more convenient than the 7th month, because in the 8th month, you're done with harvest. The 7th month, you're right in the middle of harvest. It is not the time to have a feast. Like, there's work to be done. And God says, put the work aside for one week and, and honor me in the middle of your harvest. You, you get the idea of, of changing things from God's divinely ordained seventh month to an eighth month is that they're adding something to it. And I'm sure they thought, well, this is just going to be way more convenient for us to meet in the eighth month than the seventh. It's just better for us. And we think that way sometimes in the kingdom. What's better for us? So they meet on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places which he had made, not God. So remember Aaron, the, the, Davidic, or the, the Levitic line through Aaron was ordained by God through miracles. right? It was put into place in that way. So in this way it's just put into place by Jeroboam. Verse 33, so he made offerings on the altar, which he made at Bethel. On the 15th day of the eighth month, they say that twice so that we don't miss that point, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. So it's important that they're changing dates. What difference does it make? Like, honestly, I think that's just a normal human question. Like, who cares what month it's on or where it's at? And the only answer the Bible gives us is because God said so. That's the only reason we get sometimes. And that's one of those things that's tough for our flesh because we're like, well, it just doesn't make a difference. Let's just do what's easier for us. And sometimes God just says, this is what I want you to do, and here's how I want you to do it. And part of our submission in the kingdom is to just say, okay, 14th day, 7th month, that's when God said so. Or do you doubt that God had a reason for that day in the first place? And with most of those principles in the kingdom, there's, there's a number of them where we say, well, what difference does it make? Or we're hearing more and more that argument of, well, that's culturally contextual. Well, was it? Are, something, are, are sins culturally contextual? Or has God ordained what is right and what is wrong and has done it from the beginning of time? 
And what do you stand on? And where do you decide to make those things? I think these are some of the top questions we have in our walk. So we have full-on false worship, and therefore we have false study going on with these people. They've disregarded God's word, so they can't teach God's word. They've lost all moral high ground in doing that, yet they continue to practice. So then you get this idea of location, and I just want to read this to you so you, can, you don't have to take my word for it. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. God absolutely said where they should do things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithe, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. It was super clear they're supposed to take their sacrifices to Jerusalem, the place that God had ordained and picked but it's so much easier to just go to Dan. It's only five minutes away. You know, it's so much easier to go to Shechem to do my stuff or go to one of the high places. Hey, there's high places all over the place. Every little town had a little high place. I'm just going to go up there and do my thing because the religion has nothing sacred in their hearts. It says he devised in his own heart. And I think that's the danger of trusting our own heart on some of these things instead of just trusting the word of God. It's danger. So they never repeat this system. Notice they still call it Yahweh worship. They're still saying that they're Jews. And this is part of the great division. It's why the, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans in the first century. They'd made up their own religion that they called Yahweh worship. But it wasn't according to Yahweh's way. And this is why the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Is that this practice was taken up by these people. And it was something other than a worship of Yahweh because it disregarded God's word and simply went ahead with whatever they felt like doing. Then you get to 1 Kings 13. It says the word and, which is why we're doing two chapters. When we can, we do this. It's all part of the same story. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So he's breaking the law of Deuteronomy right there. And then he cried out against the altar. I like, I like that he cries out against the altar and not Jeroboam. Like he's yelling at the rock because Jeroboam's not worth his time. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave the sign the same day, saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Remember, prophets had to prove they were prophetic. So there would be a short-term sign where they would know this was from God so that they would keep the prophecy in the records for later on. So these records then are being kept theoretically by the northern kingdom. And they got combined and brought in when they wrote the book of Kings. This is the sign which the Lord had spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! And then his hand which he stretched out towards him withered so that he could not pull it back himself. The altar was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the way of the Lord. So a prophecy gets made. I think this is a nice, like a really good example of the prophecy being made, but right there on the spot, you see proof of it through a supernatural miracle. Honestly, like Christ resurrecting from the cross was an immediate confirmation that Christ spoke of God or was from God 
but we have 2,000 years before the prophecy of his return has come true. So it's the same kind of thing here. The altar is split open, the ashes pour out, and it's an immediate recognition that there's a power with this person that they are speaking on behalf of God. It says a man of God in verse 1, no name, we don't have a character for this person. It's just a man of God. It's just some guy that represents the Lord. So we have few nameless characters in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Uh, it says, by the word of the Lord, you're going to notice in chapter 13 that that phrase, by the word of the Lord, gets used 10 times. Just don't miss the fact that this is God speaking now. God's intervening into this story. So God gives a strong warning against the false religion of these 10 tribes. The word of the Lord gets mentioned 10 times. It's like each one of the tribes got their own warning. Ample warning is the point. He's... Um, the name Josiah isn't going to be born for 300 more years. So he's prophesying about somebody that's coming 300 years later. I still think, and I, I hate to read past these prophecies, but I think that's part of the miracle of the Word of God. That's why this book is just absolute gold, is that we actually see that God intervenes in history by His Word. And that when He does it, it comes true, and in that we can have faith. It's confirmed by the altar split in verse 5. It's backed up by this nameless messenger. Um, that's there. Jeroboam says, arrest him, and his arm withers. The word there means for the muscles to go lame. In other words, he has muscles there, but they don't work anymore. It's like when you wake up and you've been sleeping on your arm and your whole arm's fallen asleep. So it says he, doesn't have, he can't draw it back, which means there's no muscle use in the arm remaining. Can't pull it back. And the king answered and said to the man, or, I mean, maybe it's a CGI special effect, right? And the whole arm actually just kind of withers down or something. But the word there implies the muscles stopped working. Which would be something fairly intimate for Jeroboam. Like, it's a way for God to speak to him without necessarily a visual thing. But then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord for your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, the king's hand was restored to him, and he became as before. And then the king said to the man of God, again, it's just the man of God, it's just somebody speaking for the king, come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place, for it was so commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Don't use these verses as like it's justified to not be hospitable with people that you don't agree with. The point here is God doesn't want him breaking bread because he doesn't want the man of God to be shown as having fellowship with this false religion. So to stop anywhere in this country is to say, I'm, I have shalom with you, I'm breaking bread with you, we have community together, and this is really like, this is tough because you meet, sometimes you meet people and they say, you know, they're following the Lord and they're not and you realize that and then you say, okay, what do I do with this? Well, here's the answer. If God has told you to break bread with people and have fellowship and be peaceable with all men as he has, you should be peaceable with all men as you should be. This particular guy was told to not eat bread and drink water as a sign to the northern kingdoms of the fact that God does, isn't establishing or ordaining this new religion. It's a very particular situation. Um, he's supposed to go back another way from the way that which he came. In other words, he's not going to make a path between the two countries. He's not going to beat a path between them. There's no fellowship when you're making up your own thing. Verse 6 uses the phrase, your God, kind of speaks to the heart of Jeroboam. 
Talk to your God for me. So we first saw them making an alternative Judaism, but now it's almost like there's a different God there, actually. Should have been saying our God, but he doesn't ask for revival. He just asks for his hand. He only asks for the physical and the flesh. He doesn't ask for anything spiritual, any blessing on what he's doing. Please entreat the favor of the Lord. Really, the word entreat there is to soften the face of when you look it up. It has that word penyim. Please soften the face of the Lord. So Jeroboam's fully aware of what's happening spiritually here. He realizes that the Lord is hardening his face towards what they're doing. But he's going to go ahead and do it anyways. I think sometimes when people are going their own way, making up their own religions, they can harden their heart towards those things and say, I'm going to do my thing. And even when they're warned by a man of God, just anybody that speaks for God's word, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, they actually react with a much more hard heart because they've already determined they're going to do things that are shinier, more convenient, compromised the way they want to do it. And they don't really want to talk about what the Word of God says. They just want to do it the way they want to do it. And they'll have tons of reasons for it. And in this case, Jeroboam even says, I'll give you a reward. He's talking to a man of God thinking that Jeroboam has a reward he can offer that guy. Again, he's just thinking with the flesh. Well, I'll make it, I'll make it good by you. If you get, give me my hand back, I'll, I'll cozy up to you. We can, we can be buddies and partner up. So I think it's interesting that the man of God restores the hand, but he won't do fellowship with him. In other words, he's willing to heal him. He's willing to help. He's willing to lend a hand, literally. <laughs> but he's not willing to necessarily break bread and say, okay, we're brothers again. Because there's something broken here. Frankly, any split between, between God's people, we often have a clear direction from God's word as to what we should be doing. So God's word can actually cause us to split if we have disagreements about what it says, but God's words can, can also cause us to be united around what God's word says. And that's a good thing. Like if you have an entire church going down the way of apostasy and you're your pastors start wearing robes and giving themselves 12 different titles and making confessional booths and holy pedestals with water in them. And sometimes maybe you should just say, yeah, we're not in for this anymore. And you come up with 95 differences between you and the God of Word. And you just tack those differences on the door and say, I'm done with you guys. That's a godly split. You're going so far from the Word of God, I can't stay with you guys anymore. And if you don't know the reference to Martin Luther, that's a good history lesson for you. Right? You can look that up later. It's called the 95 Theses. So Jeroboam says, I'll give you a reward. We can, you do something for me, I'll make it good for you. The split here isn't actually over a, a difference or a hatred. The split's here over a desire to come into God's presence. And the man of God's there to try to help him come back to it. The warning isn't to just be mean and legalistic. The warning is because they're on thin ice with God. And God fairly and justly gives people warnings. He says, I will not go in with you. I'm not here to be your friend. Right? That's not exactly bending over backwards to make a convert. In fact, the way to make a convert of a hard-hearted person is to say, no, I'm not going to go that direction. I, you shall not eat bread or drink water. And he got it straight from God. I'm not supposed to break bread with you. So in this case, breaking bread is about far more than eating, right? Because he's probably really hungry. Like the trip up to the northern and down, that, we're talking about days of not drinking or eating food. So he's kind of making a sacrifice to do this. It is about saying, what kind of gifts can I take or not take from these kinds of situations? So 
the idea of the, the man of God doesn't really need anything from Jeroboam and his fleshly stuff. So now that the split's done, the new false teachers first invite people to eat with them. But then notice the shift here that when they hear the word no, that now they turn violent and mean, which shows you their heart in the first place. They weren't really trying to be buddies. Do it my way and we'll be buddies. Don't do it my way. Stick with your God and now we're not, now we got problems. So it turns from an invitation for fellowship into an actual attack, and this is how persecution happens. Verse 11, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, and they also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah, and then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. I like that their fastest animal is a donkey. I just think that's hilarious. Settle the donkey. He hops on board and he's like moving. But anyways. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. And, he, and maybe his hair even blew back for a second or two. Verse 14, and he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. And then he said to them, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, yeah, I am. And then he said, come home with me and eat bread. Notice now we have two nameless characters, both of which are prophets both of which claim to be speaking or speaking on behalf of God, right? So it is, you have to judge things or measure things because even in false religions, you have people that claim they speak for the name of God. So the false prophet starts out friendly. Let's eat together. Let's get together. Um, the man of God from Judah, notice we find him sitting under a tree. I think we should take note of that. What was his command from God that he just got done saying a few verses ago? Supposed to go there, give his message, and go back. Was he told to sit under a tree and hang out? So the first mistake this guy makes is he's hanging out with the people that are against God. And he's resting in their environments. So living in that environment and settling in there, we have this. So the false prophet uh, starts out friendly. Let's talk. Uh, let's not get caught in an act of rebellion but he's still living with pagan apostasy. Later on, we're going to see that his sons were attending pagan worship festivals. So he's a prophet, but he's living in total compromise. He's going to the high places, hanging out with things that are against God's word. So he maybe has heard from God in the past, but he's active to connect with this guy who's living God's word right now. Sometimes Christians that are dead and haven't heard from the Holy Spirit for years, they love to glom on to new on-fire Christians. And it's one of those things that happens in the church. So he's supposed to get in and get out. He's resting instead of moving. And you got this guy who's coming in who's clearly not speaking on behalf of the Lord anymore. And he's trying to lure this guy into compromise. Verse 16, he says, I can't return with you. This is the Judah, the man of God. Can't return with you or go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I've been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread or drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Basically, I got a clear direction from God and I'm not departing it, even though he was sitting still when he should have been moving. So he knows what God said to him. Nehemiah 6.2 Then Sabat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. When Nehemiah came back from Babylon and was told to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, he was told by God to rebuild that city. But there were other Jewish people that didn't want to have conflict with Cyrus or with, uh, with Persia. 
So they were really upset that Nehemiah was rebuilding the city of Jerusalem because that's God's chosen city. So they didn't want the conflict, so they tried to stop Nehemiah from doing what they're doing. And they tried every method they could. One of the methods they tried was to get Nehemiah to come down and stop the work on the wall so they could just hang out and have, you know, be buddies. And so, but they brought, they brought, they thought to do him harm. And then in Nehemiah 6, verse 3, so I sent messengers to the say, saying, I'm doing a great work, so I can't come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? One of the things God's people do is they know what they're called to do. And when somebody says, oh, why don't you just stop that and come do this or do this other thing? God's people often are so clear in their calling. They're like, nope, I'm doing a great work right now. I know what I'm doing is right. I'm not going to leave it to go do something else. So again, they hear the word no, and then they become hostile with Nehemiah. They become hostile with the man of God. They hear the word no, and that gets them upset. And the no is simply like, I'm doing my thing. I don't need to do what you're telling me to do. Like, we can live in peace. Let me do my thing. You do your thing. We can be neighbors and not have conflict. Israel uh, has other neighbors that are pagan nations that they're not at war with right now. And he said to him, verse 18 of our chapter, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house so that he might eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. When false religions get formed and the Holy Spirit's not part of the false religion, you often have an exaggerated spirituality that goes along with it. This is getting into complex stuff. You get a false religion and the Holy Spirit's not there, so humans have to invent the Holy Spirit. So they start to lie. Well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and did this. But notice he doesn't, he doesn't blaspheme the name of the Lord. He says an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. He doesn't say the Lord spoke to him. And so there's still a level of respect there because you don't want to cross that line if you don't have to. But what do you do in the face of such evil? If you're a nice, normal Christian person and somebody lies straight to your face about their spirituality, what do you do in the face of that kind of evil? Like, I'm not going to sit and doubt everything everybody says to me. i got to kind of take this person at face value. The only thing this guy has at a defense at this point, because he shouldn't have been sitting there in the first place. No donkey should have caught up to him. But the second thing he has is now he's listening to this guy. And I think like a decent human being, you take him at face value. They say the Lord's telling him to do something. Well, who am I to doubt that? He had two hints here. One is that there's secondhand information coming from the false prophet. And this guy, this man of God, has firsthand information of what God himself has told him to do. So if God's told me to do this, there's no word of humans that's going to take me away from that. There's no power on this earth that takes me away from the love of God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because God told me to do it. So we have this, this way in which we can start to filter a false religion from a true religion, primarily based on did God say it or did God not say it. And this guy has that tool. He knows what God told him to do. And no matter what gets thrown in his way, he should have stuck to it. By the way, I'm saying that because there's a tragedy about to happen. Galatians 1.8 but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Notice that Paul includes in Galatians any angel, anything that calls himself an angel. It might be from the spiritual world, but you know what a fallen angel is called, right? Demon. And there's not, there's a pretty, the, the line between the two is obedience to Yahweh or not obedience to Yahweh. But they both can be pretty powerful experiences to come across. Both the Quran and the Book of Mormon both claim to be delivered by angels. 
Both of them contradict the word of God that we have from God. So how do you know that the Book of Mormon is not true? I don't have to figure that out. I can just stick with the Bible. Because the Bible is a record of God's intervention with humanity throughout history. So when something contradicts God's word in the Bible, I can just say, I don't need to even spend a lot of time with that. So when somebody says, well, an angel talked to me in a closet, I'm going to go with the God that revealed himself to great numbers of people and was tested throughout history and verified by the experiences of many. I'm going to choose that over those. So God's word becomes the standard against which everything else has to prove itself, not the other way around. We get back to our chapter, verse 19. So he went back with them. That's mistake number two. And he ate bread in his house and he drank water. Now he is defied and, dis and, and disregarded what God told him to do. When God's given you a calling in life and something else seems very appealing to take you away from that calling, it can be really destructive. So if God's given you a mission, God's given you something to work on other than the basic commands of a believer, you should really do those things. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back, the false prophet. And he cried out to the man who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed, the word there is to rebel, because you've disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat and no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. This is a horrible punishment for this period of history. To not have your body laid to rest. Remember Joseph asked for his bones to be brought back to the Holy Land so they would be with his family. So to not be buried with your family is just a tragedy. The old prophet then becomes God's new instrument to give judgment. And this becomes a strong warning then for any servant of God. We now have the northern tribes in disobedience, but we also have the man of God from Judah, Benjamin, also in disobedience. So nothing good is happening in these two chapters. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, like this, been a, like it seems like almost like the Lord just shouted through this guy's mouth. And then they all just kind of sat quietly and like they, after he had eaten bread and finished the drunk, like they just kind of had this awkward moment. And then they go on with life. Well, I'm going to get on the donkey and take off now. Verse 24, when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. That's just so blunt. And his corpse was thrown onto the road and the donkey stood by it. <laughs> the donkey's like, mm, bummer. So the lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and they saw the corpse thrown down on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went and told it in the city where the old prophetess dwelt. This would be something to talk about. Hey, I'm coming home from work. I saw a, I saw a lion. That's enough. But I saw a lion standing next to a dead guy and he wasn't eating the dead guy. That's an, And there was a donkey standing next to both of them. Normally donkeys run from lions. Normally lions eat their prey. And normally lions might even take that prey and haul it off somewhere. It wouldn't just stand there. So to have a lion standing still over a dead body with a donkey standing there would be a very weird thing to see. So they've got multiple people coming back to town. Again, when God works, it's obvious. People see it. So they're all running back into town going, yeah, we just saw this weird thing. So why is this prophet killed? Some people really struggle with this kind of thing. He went to do God's work. He delivered God's message. The altar split in two. God's seriously working through the guy. But then he disobeys God, and then he's immediately killed. That seems a little harsh, like Old Testament harsh God stuff, right? 
the reality here is this is actually pretty darn consistent. So Exodus 27 says, you shall not take the Lord in the name, the Lord of your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold you guiltless who takes his name in vain. You claim to be speaking for God, you're held to a higher standard. Here's another one, Galatians 1.8, New Testament. But even if we or an angel from heaven, oh, I'm sorry, I got that in from the last thing. The idea here is that um, if you take on the ministry, you are held to a higher standard. And you're, the verse I meant to put in there was the one about the, if you uh, lead one of these little ones astray, it's worse for you than to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the water. Just don't teach little ones anything and you don't have that kind of consequence, right? So if you're called to teach or proclaim that you're speaking God's word to people, there's an absolute higher standard there. And I think it's important for Christians to know that we hold our teachers to a higher standard too. And if you see your teacher doing something that's off the mark from the word of God, you sit in the back and shake your head and go, no, 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 until they notice you. That's not right. This is what the word of God says. Because everybody's imperfect, even your favorite teachers. Even if they edit it on YouTube to get you just the clips that they like. We have to keep, thing, keep people accountable to that sort of thing. So what God's doing here is he's holding to, accountable to somebody who's claimed to have given their life to God in the first place. This man of God is serving God. He's the ambassador of God, and God wants to take him home. That's God's business. And if you're not going to be an ambassador that sticks to God's word, you're taking up his name in vain, and you're not holding it in high regard. So this is worth noting. It won't be forgotten. It's enough to write it down so they keep this record so that we can read it in 2022. Verse 26. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. This is all the sons get to hear from their dad. Saddle the donkey, kids. So they saddled it, and then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. This is the oddest scene that you're going to see. And like, this is just like, imagine kind of coming up the road and seeing the donkey and the lion just hanging out. Looking down at the corpse, donkeys often have a very unimpressed look on their face. You know, so the donkey's just like, really? How long do you want me to stand here? But the lion, Judah, the donkey from the northern tribes, both are standing over a dead corpse. An imagery here of a split kingdom standing over a dead corpse, the worship of Yahweh, they're both fallen. They've both screwed up. And what's happening here is a destruction of what God gave to them, the gift that he gave. The man of God gets destroyed because of disobedience to the word of God. Wouldn't it be nice to have a man of God who just never sins? Somebody could just tell us what God says directly and we can just trust him and that he doesn't screw up and he doesn't do this, that whose word lives forever instead of lays dead on the road. Wouldn't it be great if the Lion of Judah could carry that kind of person around? be awesome. I can't wait for that person to show up. But this wasn't the guy. This is just some man of God that didn't obey the word of the Lord. That's not good. It's written in the Bible and presented as a miracle. I think it's important to note that the Bible is presenting this as as an absolute supernatural event, as supernatural as the parting of the Red Sea, anything else we've seen in the Bible. Nothing natural about this situation. It also creates a really interesting image that fits with Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the split of the the nation of Israel. And how God sees that split is the issue here is that the word of the Lord has just been killed. 
and nobody seems to be following it. And I think from God's heart, that breaks his heart, that he's done everything he can do to present a kingdom to these people, a law, a civic government. He blessed them with wealth and opulence through Solomon. He gave them 40 years of peace, and they're just wrecking all of it because they don't care what God has to say. So they were disobedient to the word of the Lord. And that, again, that gets emphasized in this chapter. The word of the Lord's actually important. This is one of those chapters where we can see that emphasis. It does matter what this book says. God's given us his word and we should cherish that and take it very seriously. Verse 29, the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb and they mourned over him. Alas, my brother. What's interesting here is that you got one prophet who starts out as a liar, but he ends up trying to honor. You have another prophet that starts out speaking the word of the Lord who ends up dead. Just like Jeroboam and Rehoboam, one starts out one way and one starts out the other, and then they kind of flip places by the end of the story. And God's just given this image to both nations at this point. Alas, my brother, verse 31. So it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son saying, when I'm dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones besides his bones. You know, at the end of the day, Israel, you're all going down. What's neat is that the man of God doesn't get buried with his family, but he does get married with his brother, another prophet. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. In verse 32, the false prophet now proclaims something true. It's almost like he's turned and changed and he started to do the right thing. A lot like Rehoboam was ignoring God's word, but in the end he obeys God's word. And we see this idea that the one that lives is the guy who starts out wrong but ends right. Kind of like all of us. The one who gets the life is the one that actually obeys God in the end. So God has shown his faithful either way, either in disobedience or obedience. God's will is going to be done. And the actions here seem almost like remorse or compassion. Like first he wants to kill him, then he wants to help him. There's no motives really given here. One thought is that in, the, in these splits with God's people, that all, in all of these situations, we just have a lot of stuff where God's not active, even though God's giving warnings. The close here implies that all of this narrative is to warn both Jeroboam and Rehoboam about where they're about to go. They're supposed to be repenting. And God's waiting for either one of them to repent. So in verse 33, After this, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever wished. Whoever wanted to be a priest could just go to seminary and be a priest. And he consecrated him and he became one of the, high, the priests of the high places, And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Don't take lightly that God chooses his people and his leaders. That's so important to get out of this chapter. You don't just get to be a a priest because you want to. You get to be a priest because you're chosen. Here's the good news. In the new covenant, Jesus calls us to be priests, calls us to be a holy priesthood. Again, pointing out the sin of Jeroboam is to ignore God's criteria for priesthood and consecration. God set the Levites apart. Jeroboam ignores it. So he continues as he pleases, even after a warning, that's outright rebellion and it's a rejection of God. So when you've been told, here's where the word of God says to change your ways and you continue to persist in those ways, 
you are now in a greater sin than you were in the first place. So just one of those themes that we're going to keep seeing. The progression here is we had good hard workers, Jeroboam. He then makes it easier for God's people to worship wherever and whenever they please. Then he allows ungodly practices with the high places. And then, then they start to claim that they're still speaking for God which kills God's voice in their country, dies next to the lion, and then that voice gets buried in that same place, and then they fully reject God entirely. That's chapter 13. There's a progression of sin that starts to happen, and it starts with what we see in the last two verses. It started because they were just going to make anybody consecrated that they wanted to, which has a lot to do with some of the debates you see in the modern church. A lot of the debates are around who gets to be a pastor and who doesn't get to be a pastor. What kinds of sins are allowed and what kinds of sins are taboo? We have debates around eschatology. We have debates around theology. Well, when we start making those debates without the Word of God anymore and we start saying we're speaking God's words when we're not, you have, you have libraries full of books making claims about God that aren't from the Word of God. You can go into a Christian bookstore and there are rows upon rows of things that are not the Word of God. They're opinions of man. And they're using the Word of God to make those opinions. I'm not saying all those books are bad. Some of them are outstanding. But you have to use some discernment as a believer to parse things that are divided by the Word of God versus not using the Word of God well. And that's just one of the things we have. And that's part of the unity of Christ too is a group of people that say we're just going to stick with the Bible. It's really simple. And we don't have to please anyone outside of that conversation. So you have churches all over the metro area that just stick to the Word of God. And they do it because they believe the Word of God is actually inerrant and powerful in our lives, and it's relevant to how we live and do things. So we're just going to stick to it. And the debate is, well, what about this verse versus that verse? And that's where we have great Christian conversations and debates, is there's some things to sort out and discern in the Word of God. But now when it comes to making up false worship, like let's not do idols, Let's not build a high place, not something we're going to do. We're going to leave that to the side. And, and if you guys say, instead of a pirate ship this next summer, we want to build a golden calf, I'll say, no, thank you. I'm going to let you build that golden calf on your own, and I'm going to stay really far away from you um, when you do it, because I just want to stick to God's word. And there's nothing in God's word that says we can't build a pirate boat. Amen? Such a bad ending. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. I thank you for the grace of the people of God. I thank you, Lord, that we can just simply study the Bible simply, uh, that the word of the Lord is good for us. It's good for our learning. It's good for our discipline. It's good for us to grow closer to you. And Lord, at the end of the day, that's all we want. We want to be your servant. We want to worship you. Lord, we don't care if we live in caves like David and we don't need the wealth of Solomon. But Lord, we're going to stay away from the disobedience of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And we're going to just stay together and stick to your word. Lord, when you warn us and you send a person of God to just show us things from the scriptures or share your word with us, help us to just have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, that we can return to your will and your way every day, every week, every month. Lord, help us to not change the things that you've ordained, the things that you've set in stone. Uh, your commandments, your commandments for the church, your commandments for believers. Lord, we don't need to modify those things or change those things. Help us to just submit ourselves to those things that you've told us. And Lord, if there's people in the room that, don't, that still have question marks about what you've told us, Lord, I just pray you inspire a reading of your word that we will not quit until we're satisfied that we know what you want us to be doing. 
So Lord, I pray for our daily devotions, the, the relevance of the Word of God in our lives. On Sundays, we get a treat with, with me doing some Bible study, but Lord, I just pray you build in each person in this room just a heart and a desire to be in the Word every day, to know what you're saying, to seek after and pursue those questions that we have so that they can be settled and we can have a firm foundation as we walk through life. Lord, give us grace and mercy. Help us to forgive, forgive others as you've forgiven us, to be people that are just gracious and good and hopeful. Lord, help us to get rid of sin in our life, to just fight it like a plague that it is so that we can live holy and without guilt and without shame and before you. Lord, help us to do no works on the sake of men or for our own well-being, but any work we do is out of love for you and out of love for our brothers and sisters. Lord, that we know that your grace alone saves us and that your gift on the cross paid for our sins and paid a debt that we owed. We thank you for all those things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.